Welcome to a bonus episode of Romans Untangled. I'm very excited about this episode. I've got my good friend, longtime friend. I think we first met in 1997 or 8, if I remember right. Uh, 8. Eight, I think. Yeah. Met on the softball fields. Or One of us was athletic at the time. Uh, <laughs> just let you uh, figure out which one that was. But uh, no, I'm very excited to have Norm Meyer. Probably in the study of Romans, no one has been more influential for me than, than Normie. I can't help it. I got to call him Normie. And so uh, he was part of our church for many years, uh, went with one of our church plants, and is now serving overseas. Um, in Southeast Asia, and so maybe at the later on he'll get a chance to talk more about that. But, but uh, Norm, Norm, just before you even begin here, we get to go on. Just tell tell me about your faith story and how that all took place. Um, yeah, it's probably not super interesting. Um, I would say I came to faith as a younger kid, maybe around uh, sixth grade. I, I don't really remember. Um, I was always conscious just of sin issues in my life and. Um, I would just say inability to really do what I, I felt was right and grew up in a Catholic church. And so I understood the concept of a creator God that we we're accountable to. Um, and so I was always bothered by uh, just my sin. Um, my I've mom, always been bothered by, by your sin as well, yes. just for the record. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can talk about that in a, in a off uh, yeah, That's another bonus podcast. episode. Yeah. yeah we'll, right. Um, but my, my mom came to faith, uh, and she didn't really have any great avenues, and so she started watching uh, TV evangelism, uh, 700 Club. Okay, and, sure. Uh, I think it was PTL Club, uh, PTL, Jim and yeah, Tammy yeah, Faith right. Baker, which is not the best place to go to, to get a healthy gospel. But um, I did hear some form of gospel message, and, and I remember um, uh, repenting, praying, um, but was just really uh, unsure of my salvation going forward because those were really sensationalized television shows. People right. would come to faith and they're free of drugs and have no problems, and uh, that was definitely not my story. Um, and so, yeah, I just struggled with uh, security and salvation, but uh, thankfully, by God's grace, um, he brought people into my life, uh, showed me scripture, um, and, yeah, eventually came to kind of an understanding um, just in my journey of, of what God has done for us in Christ and how we can rest assured in our salvation. Um, but one thing that lack of security did for me uh, was I kind of had started reading the Bible on and off, um, and I came across a verse in Isaiah where it talks about mm. God's word will not fail mm. to accomplish its purposes, uh, which is salvation. And so I clung to that. I was like, if, if I'm going to be saved— it is surely going to happen through uh, God's word. And so um, probably in junior high sometime, I started reading at least a chapter a day. And it just kind of formed a foundation of familiarity with huh. uh, the biblical storyline that, you know, God and his spirit could use later on uh, just through other individuals and stuff. So grace of God. Yeah. Um, Amen. Yeah. That's great. So, I, uh, I, I, I've shared on this podcast before that I, when I was a new follower of Christ, I didn't know any better. I just started reading the Bible. I didn't know there were books that were more complicated than others. And people would ask me, what's your favorite book? And I'd say Romans. And they'd go, whoa, that's really deep. I mean, someday maybe I'm going to read that, uh, these older believers would tell me. <clears throat> and I just, I didn't know any better. And just always kind of fell in love with the book. And in 2005, you and I came up with the crazy idea to put together a one-week retreat for people in our church to go through inductively the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. We formed a, a uh, if I remember it, it was you, me, Jesse Splan, Angie Hoagland at that time, and Chris Walker. Is that right? That the, sounds I think that was the right. pilot group, the, the guinea pigs, as I think we call it, lab rats. Um, and obviously that thing has continued on. We, we continued. We just got done with one uh, this, this uh, June. Um, but yeah, tell me about how Romans has become really important to you and, you know, just some of the, the ways you've studied it for many, many years. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's changed over the years. Um, I think initially it just, I was attracted uh, in a lot of ways to its genre. Uh, I'm engineering background, math really is the language that speaks to me, not uh, the English language. Yeah. And so just kind of uh, propositional a logical truth kind of um, I think was easier for me to understand and 
Um, for sure, probably some of the, just what I talked about with uh, unsurety of salvation, mm. I think Romans addresses uh, some of that. Um, yeah, I, I think there's, it's been a kind of a varied history. Um, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a funny person in that too, whereas my Myers-Briggs is ENFP, which means I'm scattered all over the place. And yet my my background in, in my undergrad was, you know, math and education, math and science education. And so I, I also love that logical progression. And so I'm kind of a hot mess. But I've also loved the Book of Romans for that. And I, I know some people have a hard time reading the Apostle Paul because of that. To me, that's just a big, oh, love it. It's like a big Sudoku puzzle to figure out. And so I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed Romans that way. I think, as I think of your contribution to our church, and, and, and there's a variety of things. It probably can't just go down to one. But as I look at Romans, I mean, there's many places where I've felt over, over m- many uh, beers in our backyard here, talking through many issues of the book of Romans over, and yet really that's what this podcast is, is uh, we're sitting in my basement here and we got water this time, so it's not as fun, but, but, you know, just talking, having these many, many conversations. But I think when it comes down to the, the marriage analogy in Romans seven, I think is one that really was eye opening for you right around 10 years ago, maybe even a little bit uh, further Uh, back, a little further back. Is Um, it? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Talk I, about that. Talk about how it, actually, I re- I love the story of how it hit you. Um, middle of the night. Middle of the night. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, Which, you know, usually people that say, I got this idea middle of the night, it's like, yeah, that's usually heresy, you know, so, yeah. but. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, the, basically, um, I was just dealing with back pain and we were in the midst of Roman study. And you remember what year it was? I think probably, I don't know exactly. It's yeah. probably somewhere between 2007 and maybe 2009, somewhere sure. in there okay. is my guess. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, I was like, well, we got this Roman study retreat we're doing. Might as well get up and uh, dig into uh, Moo has uh, been a big commentary that uh, we use and has been helpful. Yep. Um, also enjoy Shriner's commentary. Right. Um, but yeah, I just uh, got into uh, the commentary and just kind of started looking at the text. Um, and yes, I would just say some things popped out. Um, I think uh, that was kind of towards the tail end of my seminary career. And so um, I was introduced in seminary just to concepts of biblical theology and just the idea of a storyline of, of scripture. And mm-hmm. so I think God was just using that in both of us um, to kind of reevaluate uh, what Paul was doing in Romans. Um, I know you, I love the analogy you use about you get to the end of the movie and then something's revealed that kind of changes everything and you have to go back and rewatch. Right. I see dead people. Yeah, kind of I, thing. yeah that, mm-hmm. I think that's the perfect analogy. Um, but yeah, so a lot of that was just kind of going on and I think Romans was stitching together much more coherently for us, whereas prior to those years we would teach but it felt a little bit more like okay we get one section we kind of have a topic and now we almost forget what we have just been talking about and move not completely but it it was just more disjointed um and so i think yeah there was just that was kind of going on and then um started looking at the marriage analogy and if you read the commentaries out there um and this is what we taught prior is just that Paul kind of isn't particular about the analogy. It doesn't line up one-to-one, and if you try to push it too far, um, it doesn't work, but that there's this general principle being taught. Um, But it was just kind of staring at the text, and it kind of popped that, oh, there's a different way of looking at this in which um, it does correspond one-to-one. And as I kind of looked at it more and more, just saw Paul has left us clues to actually see the correspondence um, that he's trying to trying to point us towards, um, and so yeah, it was. It's always fun. I'm a puzzle guy like you, so there's the aspect of just uh, seeing a puzzle kind of resolved, um, but then also just seeing. I think it's one of the places. There's others in Romans where Paul really leans into the theology of union in Christ, right? And just how amazing that is, and how everything we receive is based upon that union in Christ. 
if you've been listening to this podcast, you know how influential that has been, and and uh, I'm pretty sure now it's been a little while since I recorded the one on Romans seven one to six, but that's the marriage analogy we're talking about here. I'm pretty sure I gave you credit. <laughs> I'm pretty pretty sure. Uh, I, I think it's. <laughs> Holy Spirit's analogy first, and then oh, second, there you go. Okay. Secondarily, there. Paul's, and right. uh, no credit after that. And and uh, to to I mean, a lot of commentators credit they they get to the same place. I think by the end they say this is what it means. But what's lacking is this uh, this whole understanding of dying to the law in Christ and then raising without law because Christ has fulfilled the law afterwards and then that is a unification kind of of the book i think that's what's lacking in another commentary as well they're, they're still going to say you're you're dead and you rose and they're going to get to some of the big ideas but but that for us became wow the he is right here solidifying a unifying theme and then if you go backwards in the book you start to see it everywhere you knew the christ here or there even way back in romans 3 you know when he's talking about um uh, the money passage twenty one to twenty six, uh, where he's talking about you know you are you're now faith in Christ. God, uh, God is the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Well, how does that happen? It happens because of union with Christ. It's just it's all over the book. You just start to see it everywhere. So yeah, that that was awesome. I I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed. It was it was that morning though. I was a little like. Okay, you got this in the middle of the night here, and uh, <laughs> I feel okay. All right, fly with are, us. In, in are, the, are you on pain meds yeah, too? You know, yeah. there, bro. Are we? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a million things that I could talk to, and I'm sorry, I gotta call you Normie because that's what oh. I've called you for. I don't know if anybody else calls you Normie, but uh, I, I've got my dad called me Stevie up until like the last ten years of his life, and I just couldn't take it anymore. So I hope that you don't mind, but. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons I could have Norm on, uh, but the the one thing that I think Norm has really helped me in is Norm is is very well read. Uh, spent a lot of time in seminary at Southern, right? Um, mm-hmm. Studying Pauline theology and kind of some of the current trends, and has still kept his ear to the ground. And so, kind of the the heartbeat of what I wanted to talk to Norm about and really give him kind of a free reign here is just to share. I'm calling it what are current trends in Pauline studies that are threats and, and I yeah threats to the gospel of freedom that we find because of our union in Christ. And I know when people hear that word threats, it can sound, you know, like alarmist or that kind of thing. But but in a lot of ways I looked I look for synonyms and the words are dangers, menaces, risks, or hazards. They're and, and I do think there's some threats out there that are taking away from our freedom uh, that we have in Christ because of what he's done for us. And again, um, you know, when we look at the law for the believer, we really think it moves from should, I should do these things, to I get to. And, and the believer has changed and they want to. It's, there's freedom, there's joy in that. But it's very, very, very different Christian experience, the one to the other. And um, so I, I, I just, you know, we want to do whatever we can to protect that. So, Norm, what do you see? What are some of the current you know, things and just pick them off in any order you want to talk about them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think just to re- reiterate what you said, um, when we say threats, I'm not necess- we're not necessarily saying heresy and outside of um, the Christian fellowship, but um, just in the history of conservative evangelicals, people, and when I use that term, I mean just people who believe the Bible is inerrant in the original text who believes it's authoritative for our lives, and who honestly uh, are trying to follow it and understand it. Um, those people, as they read Paul and particularly or the Bible, and uh, particularly the Old and the New Covenant, and trying to understand how do these two relate to each other, um, how does that all work out, and how does command in the New Testament and the Christians. Um, uh, or Paul's assertion or the Bible's assertion, um, exhortation for us to do good works. How does that all work in this thing called salvation and being right with God and the Christian life? Yeah. And conservative evangelical Christians are just not coming to the same conclusions all the time. There's actually uh, a varied opinion about how uh, the Old Covenant relates to the New Covenant. Um, and it's not 
trivial. There's stuff at stake. And particularly, I kind of think about in two, two realms. The indiv- for the individual Christian, I go to Romans 6.14, where it says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So what it means uh, that we're not under law, but under grace, has implications for the Christian's battle against sin. So this is a day-to-day thing that af- affects our, our daily walk. Um, but then again, you know, beyond the scope of the individual, but for the church, we have the Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20, you know, Great Commission. We're trying to build God's kingdom through this gospel message. Um, and Paul says in Romans 1, 16 through 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so um, the gospel, how, how this, this reality of the Christian life is God's power and means for accomplishing this purposes. So it, it's very relevant for, um, yeah, just the Christian life. Yeah. So I would say in uh, the, the realm I walk in, the people I walk in, um, there's been kind of a, a change in, in, in how they view the structure of the new covenant. And I think it kind of correlates back to this guy who's named E.P. Sanders. There was definitely others, but he wrote this influential book in the 70s. And it, basically what he was doing is uh, prior to that time, New Testament scholarship in a lot of ways was trying to assess what was this Jew, Jewish religion that Paul was critiquing. And they use this term legalism, uh, but they define legalism as kind of a more works than uh, bad works, kind of a, a balanced system. Right, uh, sure. So there's many ways you could define legalism, but E.P. Sanders just goes back and he says, is this really what first century Judaism was about? And he comes to the conclusion, no, it wasn't. And he coins this phrase called covenantal gnomism. And that just means uh, there's this covenant that people get in by grace. God, they don't do anything to merit God's gracious election and bringing them into this covenant group that's going to experience salvation. But once they're in, uh, he, the nomism of covenantal nomism just is the Greek word that refers to, to law. And he, they're saying that there's this covenantal law that must be kept to stay in, to maintain your status. Um, and that law, that those works don't merit the, the gift that you're receiving, but they are there. They must be done in order to stay in. Um, and I would actually say that that kind of really accurately describes the Mosaic Covenant, I think, as it's given in Scripture. Um, but E.P. Sanders labeled that as a grace-based system. And I, th- I feel like that is a significant error in where kind of a root of a lot of this, uh, what, I, what we're kind of maybe labeling threats and we're going to describe in a, right. in a little bit. So just to reiterate, you're saying that E.P. Sanders said that the Old Testament covenant through Moses, Ten Commandments and on, was actually a grace-based system. Okay, that's, yes. that's pretty different than the way we've understood the Book of Romans. Yes, it's yeah. it's it's different. And the what's significant is uh, he correctly described the structure. Right. And it's a structure that I would call legalistic, not in the same way as the scale balance system where you have to do more good than than bad, but it's still legalistic in the sense of there is an element or a measure of works that is the foundation of your okayness. Not your initial okayness, right. but you have to maintain your okayness by a level of obedience. And for sure, that uh, E.P. Sanders and people since then have talked about how, yes, there's a sacrificial system to deal with sin. And so in that covenantal system, and so it's not perfect obedience, but there's a level of obedience that must be provided in order to stay in. And kind of what happened out of that is um, uh, in evangelical conservative scholarship, uh, they agreed, I think rightly, that that was primarily the structure of the old covenant, but they also agreed with Sanders' assertion that this is a grace-based system. Mm. Um, And so now that becomes what grace looks like for these scholars who are writing commentaries and as they come to New Testament, and they're they're trying to depict what does the new covenant look like for them. It looks like a covenantal nomistic structure. They won't use the a lot of times the fancy 
you know, phrase covenantal sure. nomism, but the way they describe it is there are stipulations that the the new covenant believer must keep in order to stay in the covenant. And so um, to kind of describe it in, in another uh, viewpoint, I think prior to E.P. Sanders and even afterwards, just as it took a while for him to influence, if you go back and read the Zondervan NIV uh, study Bible from 1984, they'll talk about, and in their notes, they'll talk about two kinds of covenants within the biblical storyline. They'll talk about a royal grant covenant, which we usually associate with grace-based covenants. And they'll, they'll say this was a type of covenant in ancient Near Eastern cultures. So cultures of people around uh, the Jewish people, just that whole community, many of them had this concept of covenant and understanding of different types. And uh, one of it was royal grant that was just all grace. Uh, nothing was merited. And then the other type of covenant was called suzerain vassal. And that was, you still had a higher and a lower, but the suzerain would grant certain rights or gifts or provisions to the vassal, but there was something expected in return. And the Zondervan study Bible will talk about how this type of covenant kind of maps to like the Mosaic covenant or what we would call works-based covenants in scripture. And, and that concept was just kind of I think accepted in conservative evangelical Christianity. But what happened with E.P. Sanders and scholars afterwards where they start to say, no, the, the new covenant actually has stipulations, i.e. conditions. Uh, the common assertion that is taking place in a lot of New Testament scholarship that I, I would label as a threat is just this idea that the new covenant and all the covenants in the biblical storyline are conditional everyone, including the, the new covenant. And what that means is there's stipulations given with the covenant that those inside the covenant must keep. Now, uh, uh, to be fair, these are not, uh, these are smart people and they're trying to, to follow the Lord and, and they still assert and believe that salvation is by grace alone. And so how do they work that out? In their system, typically the, uh, almost predominantly, the idea is God gifts in the new covenant the Holy Spirit to every person in that covenant, which empowers the believer to keep those stipulations. And since the Holy Spirit's given as a gift, uh, they're comfortable asserting that this is still a 100% grace-based system. Um, so that's, let, me, let me just ask yeah. a quick question here. I'm, I don't want to... Uh, keep your train of thought here, because uh, I'm known for derailing thoughts here. But wasn't the Reformation? Didn't we our, deal with this uh, in? Uh, I mean, in the 1500s, wasn't that the issue? The the Catholic thought of impartation of it sounds really similar here yeah, in a lot of ways. I, I, um, that's my impression uh, as I read Luther and his interactions with Erasmus. Um, Erasmus is a scholar that the Catholic Church kind of gets to help them defend their doctrine of salvation and justification against Luther, who was asserting in his day that uh, we are not saved by works, that it's by grace alone, and that if in any way we needed, we were to rely on our works, uh, the believer would be toast. Right. Uh, yeah, and so I... Um, there's more qualified people who've spent time reading the history, but as I went through seminary, my impression of what I was taught, and subsequently as I read, uh, I think J.I. Packer translated Bondage of the Will with uh, Luther, and he kind of gave the preface, the initial letter that Erasmus sent to Luther. Um, my impression is that, yeah, that's very much marries with uh, Erath Erasmus' assertion uh, for soteriology or justification that yes it's based on grace but there is the giving of the holy spirit and so there is this required response and luther responds strongly against that um and as i you can pick up today uh there's a relatively new book uh five views of paul that uh i've kind of perused and one of the views is is the catholic view and it seems like the he is very comfortable with uh, other Protestant scholars in this volume 
that are presenting a view that kind of marry to. It's one of those books where everybody gets to comment on everybody else. Yes, and, yes. and he's he's comfortable with with some of this this more recent yeah. scholarship. Um, okay, so what what what's the is there a name for this thing or is there a you know is there a kind of a, a group of is there a theological trend or something? Yeah, so I but before I just answer that, just one thing to kind of bring back sure. into it is. If that is the case, or I mean, taking that as the assertion of the structure of the, of the new covenant, that these scholars are asserting that it's a covenantal nomistic structure or just conditional, their stipulations. If you read Romans 6.14, the way I read it, sin shall not be master over you for you're not under law, but under grace. I think what Paul is saying, what it means to be under law is to be under any kind of covenantal system that matches to the Mosaic Covenant, i.e. to be under a nom- covenantal nomistic structure or be under a covenant where there's stipulations you have to keep. Any obligation. Yeah, and so... To, to maintain or obtain, right? Yeah, so yeah. I I think this teaching is is uh, producing a, a means by which the enemy can really um, lead to the Christian le- leading a defeated life, um, struggling with sin because they're approaching it from a legalistic... Uh, standpoint. Um, but to answer your, your question about is there kind of a group or a name, it's this uh, viewpoint of uh, the new covenant structure as being there's stipulations that you conditionally have to meet is wide. And so it's way beyond this group. But there's, I just came from Southern Baptist Seminary, and um, out of that seminary is, is some scholars who are trying to. Uh, develop what they call a medium way between uh, covenantal readings of the of the biblical storyline and progressive dispensational readings of the storyline. And this podcast is too short to go into that, but they're yeah. they're naming their new reading progressive covenantalism, and they really lean heavily into this idea of seeing the covenants as conditional um, with stipulations, but. They would say, with with the new covenant, God gives the ability to meet what He requires, and so they still assert it's it's grace based, but it's taken off at Southern. I think a lot of those scholars are up in the Twin Cities with certain church relationships. Um, they've these scholars have given the name to their ideas, progressive covenantalism. Uh, they wrote a book. Um, I'm not going to get the year right, but maybe 2011. It was called Kingdom Through the Covenant. Um, professors uh, Peter Gentry and Steve Wellam, who well, I've yep. both had, and I love both of them. Uh, Gentry much, I had Gentry much more than Wellam, Wellam just once, but learned a ton, ton from them, respect them heavily. Um, but they kind of start to lay out this theology in that book. And a few years later, they followed up with a smaller book, which was just a bunch of essays written called Progressive Covenantalism. And there is one uh, essay in that book written by Ardell Canaday, who used to be a professor up at Northwestern Bible College in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he kind of, thankfully, I think, really uh, states these things very explicitly as far as there are stipulations and um, how to works work into the, the Christian meeting these stipulations and staying in the, in the covenant. And um, so if you, yeah, if this is something you're you're like hearing for the first time, and you're like this can't be. I feel like that's a helpful chapter where it's laid out clearly. Whereas I think if you read Kingdom Through the Covenant, um, the statement that all covenants are conditional is there, but kind of the implications of that and what it means for the Christian life, I don't think is as clear. Um, and not that they're trying to hide anything; it's just not there. They have different agendas, um, but so. Uh, progressive covenantalism. There's a, a new thing we might talk about a little bit in this podcast, but um, in that five perspectives of Paul, there's a uh, scholar called John Barclay. He would not call himself progressive covenantalism. He would say that he's kind of a further offshoot from something called the new perspective, which we can talk about as well. Um, but he his his idea, what he did as a scholar, is he basically, after E.P. Sanders did this study on Judaism, and he says it was a grace-based system and that you got in by grace and then you stayed in by um, meeting this law. 
he just said, well, actually in culture, grace is a very ambiguous term and it means a lot of different things to different people. And he had the hypothesis and he felt like his research validated it, that there was actually different views of what grace was in first century Judaism. Hmm. And so he goes back and he studies it and he kind of, he develops in his book, uh, I think it's called Paul and the Gift. I might not have that exactly right, uh, but he develops a classification system of these different viewpoints uh, of grace called perfections. Um, and he basically makes the assertion that Paul's view of grace in the Bible, so the biblical view of grace represented by Paul, is um, something he calls, I hope I get the phrasing right, it's uh, unconditioned but not unconditional. And what he means by that is it's unconditioned because you get in, you receive the gift with no conditions attached to it. And it's the the recipient of the gift doesn't merit it. There's this, he says it's incongruous, meaning the recipient in no way has some quality that makes them uh, uh, a, a well-qualified recipient for this gift. It's okay. very much unmatched. But once the gift is received, that recipient must do certain things in order to maintain that relationship, i.e., provide the appropriate response to this gift. And that matches to uh, basically these covenantal stipulations. So hmm. he's using different language, but it's the wow. same idea. It sounds a, a lot like the the Norwegian heritage. I can't, I'm German and Norwegian, but the, the Norwegian side was I had all these great aunts that would give me Christmas gifts. But when I got a gift from them, I felt a burden because you had to write within 48 hours a thank you note or, yes. you know, yeah, hell hath no fury like a Norwegian auntie who didn't get a thank you note. And so they're, and they're, they're wonderful people. It was a cultural thing. I don't want to try. I'm not, I'm, I'm grateful for the gifts I got as five and six year old. Yeah. But it was interesting that oh. my response to this was more of almost burden, not, yeah. not joy of a, of a gift that what a gift is supposed to be. Right. Yeah. So, huh, interesting. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I'm a big fan of a show called The Big Bang Theory. I don't know if yeah, there's any yeah. of those out there, but one of the episodes which Sheldon receives a Christmas gift is, and he, he laments exactly that, that you haven't given me a gift, you've given me a burden, you know? <laughs> right. And so, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, I know it's, at least in my circles right now, um, the the new perspective is not quite as prevalent in maybe it's just not as new <laughs> it's kind of the the old new perspective now or whatever or the old, new new less i don't know how to say it but uh maybe describe that a little bit because i think there's um there's authors out there nt wright would be probably the most famous one again nt wright has done remarkable work on like the resurrection and a lot of different things but he would also be kind of a proponent of this also picking up on ep sander so ep sander has a couple of uh uh you know uh children here that kind of stream off from him or multiple in fact um with this but but one of them would be with a new perspective good tell us a little bit about that yeah so uh, of course uh, this is a simplification um, uh, for purposes of time's sake. But E.P. Sanders writes this book and he says, um, you know, this prevailing understanding of what Judaism was prior to his book is inaccurate. And so um, he says Judaism actually is a gracious religion. Um, so there's a scholar that kind of follows after E.P. Sanders and he says, well, if the Jewish religion is gracious. What was Paul critiquing in Romans and Galatians? Right. And so he starts with the presupposition that it can't be a works-based idea of trying to earn your salvation because Sanders has shown Judaism didn't believe that, according to his viewpoint of, of uh, yeah, what legalism and what grace is. So it must be something else. So what was Paul critiquing? And so he came up with the conclusion that Paul is actually um, critiquing an ethnocentrism among um, Jewish Christians that are maintaining um, the law practices. So things like Sabbath keeping, food laws, um, cultic things that are, are, are um, pertinent to the Jewish identity and that these 
things were preventing um, Gentile Christians from accepting the um, Christian faith. And so it's there's a new era with the coming of Christ and his death and resurrection. And with this new era, um, God is bringing in a new uh, covenant with different ID badges, different symbols that kind of identify who's in the covenant. And the, this, the new thing is faith in Christ. It's no longer these ethnocentric things that Jewish people did and that were maybe offensive to the Gentiles, but that it's faith in Christ. And so uh, what James Dunn uh, asserts that Paul is addressing in, in Romans and Galatians is this idea about the ID badges and not how is is a person saved or how is anyone saved, but rather who is it that is saved? How are they how are they marked out? So, so James Dunn is is answering the question. Some would say, "Well, wait a minute. If that's what if E. P. Sanders is right and this is what it was, then the Apostle Paul must have got it wrong." And James Dunn is saying, "No, Apostle Paul doesn't have it wrong. We have it wrong on how we're reading." Paul, is that correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. I was trying to maybe skip a, a little bit of that connection, but that's exactly it. I, from my understanding, I have not read E.P. Sanders' book, but there's people reference it so often. But yeah, that E.P. Sanders came to the conclusion Paul got Judaism uh, wrong, and Dunn says that's r- ridiculous for to have that assumption. It's much more likely that a reader 2,000 years later got Paul wrong than that Paul got, Paul got yeah, Judaism in his own He's day. minutes away from still yes. being an yes. observant Jew. Yep. So. And so he, I, uh, a lot of times James Dunn is given the credit for coining the phrase new perspective on, on Paul. Um, other scholars picked up on it, and I think, like you mentioned, N.T. Wright is probably the most pr- prolific who— He's popularized yes, it. Yes, yeah. he's popularized it, and— he he's he writes at a very um, common level, so, uh, understandable by somebody who hasn't taken seminary classes, but then also at a very academic level. So he's just what wide read and wide exposure, mm-hmm. um, and he yeah he similarly ascribes to um, just the idea of the new perspective. It's hard to pin down what exactly the new perspective is. Usually, I try I. I find the most helpful way to describe it is um, the hermeneutical or exegetical, really, decision to say that when Paul uses the phrase justified by works in, uh, or I'm sorry, justified by faith and not by works, that new perspective asserts that's referring to the concept of the ID badges, the works being these ID badges, Sabbath, Jewishness, lots, yeah. yeah. So it was an ethnic problem, yeah. as a horizontal problem yep. regarding people groups, more than it was a person trying to achieve something from God yeah. by f- checking the boxes or that kind of a thing. Right. The so kind of the big thing though is if you take a lot of those texts that we think are talking about how somebody's justified. Uh, and say that, no, that's not applying to that, you're then not really left with a lot to say and answer the question, well, how then is somebody justified? And so within the new perspective uh, movement, you just had a, a varied amount of views of how they would answer that question. It seemed to me that most of them actually would come back to a very Catholic or covenantal nomistic answer of saying uh, you get in by grace, but that there are uh, deeds, uh, basically the commandments we find in the New Testament or, or whatnot that you need to do uh, to kind of a certain level. It's it's they can't you know pin to like you know what level of disobedience or obedience is uh, the boundary marker to being in and to not being in. Right there, it uh, they're a little bit like nailing Jello to the wall on some of this. Uh, I, I recall one scholar was uh, after reading. Uh, N.T. Wright's book on Paul, that big, thick book of Paul, he asked him, do you believe in substitutionary atonement? In other words, that Christ went to the cross for our sins and paid the penalty for our sins. And and, uh, and the scholar knew him well, knew, called him Tom, you know. And uh, N.T. Wright have said, well, of course I do. But it's like, okay, that's a pretty big, big thing to not talk about in your entire book on Paul. You're like, that's squishy. So, yeah, that, that's always been kind of my problem, too. It's, it's, it's very difficult to, 
understand these things when I feel like it's kind of mush that yeah. we're. And, you know. and I, f- I feel like um, kind of like the JEPD. That old, the, that old thing. Old that, Testament. Yeah. Uh, basically. Uh, there for was those four unfamiliar. editors of the first five books of the Bible, and they had different interests, and some were interested in the priestliness, and some were interested in the Leviticalness, and yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So this was a theory that was common in the 80s, I believe. Yep. And, and even made its way to evangelical scholars where they said, yeah, this, this is, you know, seems like they're providing evidence and, and they would assert to it. Uh, but basically, it, it lost its weight because it really just didn't hold up. And I, I remember uh, I went to seminary in the early uh, 2000s and I had a professor make me read a biblical theology of the Old Testament from somebody who held this JEPD perspective. And it was it was such hogwash and it was like the only book we had to read and it was a, a long book uh at a very high language level so the vocabulary i'd have to look up and we you know work through this book and it's just painful it's painful and i get to the end of it and we come to class and he's just like yeah i had you guys read that book because i find that uh once somebody reads something where they try to hold together this theory and it they see how poorly it fits together they just never believe jepd again and mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> but could have been done in, a, yes, in, in it, one lecture. It, it, exactly. You know? <laughs> and I, I feel like uh, the new perspective ha- has and had a little bit of that in that they redefined terms that were commonly used, like righteousness and justification. Justification. They, right. So that they would say sentences that I thought I agreed with, but they meant something completely different by them. But what I found was like if you take those redefinitions of the, those terms and try to go through every verse in Galatians and make them hold up, they just don't. You they just don't. It, you, there's just no can't. way. You can't make Galatians chapter three work. Uh, you know, you have, and, and and you know, again, I'm going back to Romans because that's our passion here and all that. But if you look at Romans one thirty two, which talks about the little L law, which is written on everyone's heart, that has nothing to do with ethnic. And nothing, right? And so to say the book of Romans is really about Jew and Gentile relationships, that's what it's really about. Now, I'm not saying it's void of that. Of course, it's in there. It's a, it's a huge piece of the puzzle. In fact, I've often said that I think the new perspective, though I don't agree with it all, there's some helpfulness in reminding us again, even in Rome, where there would have been a lot of tension because the Jews were removed for a season from Rome uh, because they were, it was a stir up uh, over some, they think over Crestus, if you remember that, and and they were taken out. And so now all the Gentiles are running the church, and the Jews come back, and they're used to being in charge. And guess what? You know, you're you're back there cutting donuts for the Sunday service. Now we're going to do the rest. And there's some tension here. I get it. That's a helpful thing to remember. But no, not everything is is just people are still just people, and especially if you view the way we do that. Israel really is just a microcosm of everybody. And uh, they had it as good as they can get it, and they still blew it. And so, again, I'm overstating it, but I'm from the Iron Range, and we tend to overstate stuff. But, um, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, it seems like um, it was kind of, uh, you know, five years ago, something to be a little bit concerned about in our, in our churches in that um, I think it it had a tendency to, lead people away from the core elements of the gospel and and potentially from, you know, away from penal substitutionary right. atonement theory. Um, but it, it, it seems like it's uh, dissipating. But there's other things like this Paul and the gift that we mentioned before by John Barclay that uh, I've seen that referred to by various people many times as the, the next big book after E.P. Sanders, like this is the monumental book that is changing how uh, New Testament scholarship is is thought about. Let me, let me just add, put, push in on this one a little bit, um, because I'm not seeing a whole lot of difference between the gift and covenantal, progressive covenantalism. No, I mean, so they marry well, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's basically in, uh, another way to... It's not using the phrase covenantal nomism, but what it's describing is that same structure. And that's that's kind of what I think one of uh, the th- hopes for this podcast is just to try and synthesize some of these ideas that really are the same. They just use different language. And, and I feel like they all kind of fall under this umbrella 
that we're labeling a, a threat because we feel like it's inaccurate and it has implications for hmm. for accomplishing the church's mission in, in the yeah. life of the everyday believer. Amen. But yeah, it's exactly yeah. that. Um, it it has that covenantal nomistic structure. The interesting thing is, if you see covenantal nomism and and the idea that there's stipulations that you must keep to stay in, the question because becomes, does everybody stay in? Right. And uh, interestingly, uh, John Barclay in this Five Views, he writes his chapter, and I think it was the Catholic guy who critiques him then, and he says, you know, I agree with a lot of this. He goes, but Barclay basically said, you know, um, that no one will fall away, that uh, those who are saved will keep the commandments and stay in. I don't, he didn't state it that way, but that was the concept he was conveying with different language. And so then after everybody gives their critique, the author of the chapter is always uh, given a, an extra chance to respond to his critics. And Barclay says, oh, thank you. Uh, I actually made a mistake. I, I do believe you can lose your salvation. Ah, like, okay. I, I meant to say, state that, so thank you. I can't remember the, the Catholic scholar's name. Sure. Um, so yeah, uh, it's it's there. I think it, uh, and I, I've I think that's one of the reasons why this book is having a huge effect in New Testament scholarship is because so many of them, the gift book, the gift book, have actually moved to this idea that the new covenant structure is this covenantal nomistic structure and. And agreed with E.P. Sanders that that's a grace-based structure. Well, that's that's really interesting, and uh, I, I, you know, you keep going. It, it can sound a little bit like we're arguing about how many, you know, how many angels are on the head of a pin or something. I don't, I don't even know why people use that as an argument. I don't know. Thirty-three, right? Thirty. <laughs> well, that solves that. Uh, but the, I just think it's unbelievably important in just how a Christian lives their life. I mean, I when you come back to it. Romans six fourteen is huge. Uh, uh, you'll, you're not under you. You sin no longer is your master. Why? Because you're not under law, but under grace. And to me, anytime you put yourself under back under law, you just gave sin its power again. You just gave it its power. It's now yelling at you. You don't measure up. You're not going to make it. Whereas grace says, uh, you you don't measure up, but the one who you're unified to totally did. And guess what? Now you can go kick sins, but because my okayness is not at stake anymore. Now, I don't. You can say it any way you want, and all these different things. But to me, the idea that there are there's this stipulation, there's a gift, and there must be a response, or whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, it still leaves the believer then in fear. Yes. Yeah. It, uh, for sure. And. Um, with that, though, I, I kind of want to take just a little bit of a quick side bunny trail because uh, I we think, don't ever do this on this podcast. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, this is new territory here. I'm oh sure. yeah, yeah, right. Uh, um, Steve and I would say yes. The 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 believer has the Holy Spirit. They are empowered, and um, one would expect to see evidences of the Holy Spirit's working in a in a believer's life. Amen. And you could critique us and say, well, doesn't that functionally end up working the same way as the stipulations? Like what what level of evidence must be there for, for somebody to be saved? And, and even though we're making this distinction of uh, the view we're critiquing and calling a threat has a, uh, the stipulations are a covenantal law that con- conditions them staying in or out. But when you state it our way, which is basically saved by the grace of God, your justification is completely based on Jesus's deeds, getting in and staying in, that in no way do our Holy Spirit-empowered good deeds factor into um, our getting in or staying in or conditioned. Um, But if we also assert, though, in kind of the common phrase is, you're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, can't that uh, eventually start to become and function the same way in the life of a believer as as a covenantal law. Yeah, um, and I think it. I think the short answer is it can if you don't make the, the the correct observations and nuances there. And I think Paul does that for the reader in Romans seven, which 
Steve enjoys this greatly because as we started teaching the second half of Romans 7, uh, so this is verses... There's thir- a repentance coming yes, here. So yeah, uh, the Verses 13 through 25 where... Uh, is the the question is the law become the cause of death? Then right, I think right. is the question, and and Paul says no. But the, the one of the uh, ancillary questions of this passage is as Paul's describing this battle of I do the things I do not want to do. I find then the principle that sin is within me. Is this Paul as a believer or is Paul as a non-believer? And when we first started teaching. Romans, Steve was very adamant, this is Paul as a believer. And my my response was, I don't know, but if I had to throw my cards in, I would say it's a non-believer because I just found the language of enslavement so strong. Right. And it seemed like that I was married to an, to an unbeliever. But um, sometimes learning Greek helps. I definitely do not think it's a requirement, even for pastoral ministry. It's just another tool in the tool belt. Um, but as I was kind of looking at the passage in Greek, I realized Paul's construction there, particularly in Romans uh, 7.14, uh, it's a paraphrast- paraphrastic construction, which means something to people who've studied Greek. You don't need to know that. But basically, I think it's better translated, uh, the sinful, or I'm sorry, the fleshly part of me right. has been enslaved to sin. And I think he's referencing the storyline back to the garden uh, when Adam, I think that's in Paul's mind as he writes that verse, but he's basically saying, as a Christian, yes, I've been redeemed and uh, I've been freed and I'm going to, yeah, but there's still sin indwelt in my flesh and he's talked about that right. in Romans 6 and that has, in an, uh, still has a subjective enslaving aspect sure to it. Sure does. Uh, yeah, if you're, on this podcast, I've been talking a lot of a phrase saying, we're, we're new creation people in old creation world and in old creation flesh. Yes. And that's like, wait, that's, yeah, but the real me, the, the real I is when Paul says, the good I want to do, I don't do. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a weird thing? He's saying the real I, but the, the rest of me I, this unredeemed flesh, which is uh, very susceptible to sin still living in this fallen world, uh, corrupted as it is, and one day will be made incorruptible. That's what the joy and the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. He's the first fruits will one day be like that as well. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, um, but to me it's, it's not a small thing because I think what that does then is Romans seven fourteen to 21, right? Uh, 20, 25. 25, yeah. What that, what that says is, Welcome to the normal Christian life here, living in a fallen world. I mean, it's going to be a struggle. But what's not at stake is heaven. Yes. What's at stake is my joy. I'm getting duped by the enemy of my soul. Sin is not fun, not productive, waste of time. Uh, it, 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 it's here to you know kill, steal, and destroy. But if I actually think that what's at stake is heaven, what's at stake is my justification, now I'm going to do some things. I'm either going to live in total fear or I'm going to start to minimize sin and say, it wasn't that bad. I, I'm okay. And you start, it's just legalism 101 in my view. Yeah. It just, it's, a, it, 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 that's where the human heart goes. And so to, to bring the bunny trail a little back even further, uh, Paul talks about in that passage, he's basically makes the assertion that he's sinning against his will. And I think that that phrase, the thaleo, is important. That's a Greek word, but the, the will. In Paul's theological mind, there's a difference. There's two types of people. Those who have their will enslaved, which are non-Christians. Sure. And those who are enslaved against their will, which are Christians, which Paul is describing in Romans 7 there. And so when I bring it back to um, the cr- critique against me of saying, well, isn't your view functionally the same? That there's the you ha, you say there's the Holy Spirit and the the faith that saves is never alone. That the primary evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit is not um, victory over every sin. Rather, it's the freeing of the will to desire mm. to follow after Lord. Mm-hmm. And so, 
when I, you know, if I'm doing uh, counseling with somebody who's struggling with a habitual sin and they're just getting beat up by the enemy, the thing I point to them is, you're in the fight. And that right. is the evidence of right. the Holy Spirit's work in you. Amen. Um, and then once you get there, then uh, the fact that you do have the Holy Spirit doesn't become a burden in the sense of, well, I have this Holy Spirit, I have to meet the standard. Rather, it's like, no, I'm in the fight and I have hope now. Exactly. The Holy Spirit. 100%. 100%. 100%. I, and to me, it is, it's a big deal. I, I, I think it just sets a totally different culture in a church. Um, and so if you have a church that's based on kind of this, this idea that, well, you better, you better measure up, you know, if you want to call it soft legalism or hard legalism, like a fundamentalist or whatever, but it, it leans into that, that permeates the culture. It's a culture of not trusting, suspicion, and people aren't even aware uh, of themselves, um, instead of just saying, no, I can be vulnerable here. And, and yeah, I'm probably going to be hurt here, but that's okay because ultimately I'm, I'm okay in Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so, for sure, uh, we're not trying to minimize the sin in the Christian life or the battle against sin. For sure, we think um, it's important to, um, to, to combat sin and that the, the more you do that, I would say, more try to image Christ, the more joy you're going to have in your Christian walk. But it becomes another question, which I, I'm going to punt on it, addressing it in this podcast, but how do you do that then? And I think um, one of the people at Hope, uh, I like Davis's uh, comment, he says, um, you know, the law can be a tool in that maybe, but he turns the volume down on the law as far as it's a tool in your battling of sin, but it's not the primary thing that is going to ultimately help the Christian uh, defeat sin. It's, it's worship. It's, yes, it's Amen. enjoyment in the in yeah. in God. Yeah, and and uh, isn't that that goes back to some of C.S. Lewis's, um, at, you know, where he would say, uh, you you people would say, I, I love something too much, and he would say, No, you don't love it nearly enough. You're not really going. I'm butchering the. F it's not coming to me right now exactly how he said it, but but he he says, No, you're you're. You're not you. Ah, I can't remember the exact quote, but but it was really a good yeah. quote, and it, it's life changing to me. And, <laughs> so, hey, we I'm trying to wrap up here. Uh, let me let me give you a few speed questions. Uh oh, you ready? All right. All right, these are just to let you get favorite hobby. Oh, it's changed. Uh, I'd say reading, maybe. Yeah. Um, what do you read for fun? Uh, I find, so I'm sorry, this is going to turn me off to a lot of, or a lot of people off to me, but I just actually do find biblical theology a uh, fun <laughs> to, to read. So, uh, I, the last fiction that I read that I can remember is the Harry Potter series, oh, yeah. which I loved. I love stories about friendship and relationship yeah. and obstacles. Um, but that's probably over a decade ago. Wow. Um, that I read. Great, great. What's one thing that you've never done? You know, you ever play that game where you get chips and sitting in a circle just to get to know people and you say, well, I've never, and then if you state something that everybody else has done, like I've never ridden a horse and I always get chips that way from people because they've ridden horses. What's something you've never done? Oh, uh, I mean, I don't know why this one comes to mind, but it jumped out of an airplane. Yeah, well, I'm with you on that one. Nor do I ever plan intentionally to do so. Yeah. so. Oh, one that's kind of, uh, so I have no problem with uh, tobacco. Uh, this is not a message yeah. against tobacco. I, but I've never uh, smoked a cigarette huh. uh, or any kind of tobacco. I was in third grade, and a nurse brought in a actual lung, lung taken out of somebody who's deceased yeah. and passed it around our third grade class, and that visual has stuck with me. Yeah, um, I still wonder if I if I may try it sometime. Just to, I like the secondhand smell, but um, yeah. I have never. We've hung out this many years. We've never smoked a cigar together. Yeah, that's strange. I, I, yeah, I'll let you see my lung at my autopsy. All right. So, All right. Yeah. Um, uh, you're gonna have a little boy. Yes. Yes. Uh, him and his lovely bride Jamie are are due here. You're about a third the way through. Is that roughly where you're at? Or uh, yeah, a little little over the third third yeah. of the way. Um, I keep scaring my wife. Uh, I'm telling everybody I'm going to name him Oscar. Oscar Meyer. That will do it. So <laughs> so are you going to raise your little boy 
with the curse that I raised my three boys with of being a Viking fan? Uh, it's probably going to be inevitable. Yeah. Um, it just... It, it happens. We, we like to, uh, Norm and I are right now in my multi-dollar studio here where there are tens and tens of people who listen to this podcast, uh, but it's actually just my pool table with a couple of Amazon mics. But uh, in this basement also, I have a, a, a big screen, uh, you know, projector thing, and, and the, we, often the boys will all come over still. And at the, end of, at the end of, like last season was just full of heartbreaking losses, the comment often is made. Father, why did you do this to us? <laughs> <laughs> Favorite comedy movie? Oh, uh, Hitch is a good one that oh, yeah. comes to mind. Um, that that may be a favorite one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Norm, I really appreciate you hanging out here. Uh, it's been good just to dialogue, bring up some of these things. Hopefully it's helpful for our folks, you know, to think about some of these things uh, and to recognize them, you know, and to uh, to realize that, uh, yeah, I'm okay in Jesus is, is a very important thing in the Christian life. And to just, again, not to live your life totally in being suspicious of other folks and everything, but at the same time to read critically and to, to realize that, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe the, the Romans actually does answer a lot of these questions. So anyway, thanks so much for Yeah, thanks hanging for out. having me. Yeah, was, absolutely. And thanks for, thanks for listening to uh, this bonus episode of Romans Untangled. We're going to start up again uh, in the fall. It'll be late September when we get the, the third season. I just laid it all out. Um, I hope to have two more bonus episodes this summer. So have a great summer. Stay cool. Stay cool.